The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programming that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Today we will conclude our Talking About Opera recording on Giuseppe Verdi's last opera, Falstaff, which is part of our larger Shakespearean-themed episodes that we've been releasing over the course of the summer. If you have not yet listened to part one of the episode, I highly suggest you do that first before diving into this one, as part one covers some historical background and act one of the opera, and this episode will be covering the rest of the opera, starting with act two and then ending with act three. So picking up right where we left off yesterday, this is Bridget Paolucci talking about Falstaff. The Garter Inn is once again the setting for the first scene of Act Two. This scene basically consists of two conversations in which Falstaff is duped, the first with Quickly, the second with Ford. Quickly tells Falstaff that Alice wishes to see him and that her husband is out of the house from two until three o'clock. As for Meg, her husband seldom leaves the house. So much as she would like to see Falstaff, it's impossible. Quickly leaves, and Bardolph enters with Ford, whom he introduces as Mr. Fontana. In the Shakespeare, Ford's assumed name is Master Brook. Fontana means fountain in Italian. Ford, alias Fontana, offers Falstaff gold for a favor. He says he has tried to court Alice, but to no avail. She is chaste. But perhaps if Falstaff conquers her, then no longer being chaste, she may submit to Fontana. Falstaff agrees to help, adding that he plans to visit Alice that very afternoon, between two and three. When Falstaff goes off to get dressed, the outraged Ford ponders the faithlessness of women. Falstaff returns, arrayed for his rendezvous with Alice, and the two men exit together. Act two opens with a lively orchestral introduction that ends with a loud trill, a reminder of the Merry Wives' reaction to Falstaff's immensity. Falstaff is seated in the tavern, drinking sherry as usual. Bardolph and Pistol are beating their breasts, pretending remorse as they apologize to Falstaff. Bardolph announces that a lady wishes to see Sir John, and quickly is ushered into the room. She greets him as Reverenza, Your Worship. Her vocal line, which seems to curtsy as deeply as she does, includes an exaggerated grace note, Reverenza, a note that reinforces the mock formality of her greeting. The vain and gullible Falstaff greets her just as solemnly, and she curtsies once more, repeating, Reverenza.
When Quickly tells Falstaff that she needs to speak to him privately, he dismisses Bardolph and Pistol. Again she sings, Reverenza, but this time the word is followed by the note C played several times by the orchestra, high, low, hesitant, creating an air of suspense and teasing. Quickly mentions Alice Ford, then adds, povera donna, poor woman. The first note is held, exaggerating the word povera. You're a great seducer, cries Quickly. I know, I know, says Falstaff, as the music momentarily takes on a self-satisfied air. Quickly speaks softly, telling him the purpose of her visit. Little by little, her vocal line rises as she tells him that Alice loves him, that she received his note, and that her husband is out every afternoon from two until three. There's a slight pause before she spells out the hours for his visit, dalle due alle tre, and Falstaff repeats, dalle due alle tre. This mischievous phrase captures Quickly's amusement as she ensnares Sir John. As you'll hear, all of this takes place with mercurial speed. The reverenza greeting, the hesitation in the orchestra, the povera donna phrase, Falstaff's smug response to being called a seducer, Quickly's report from Alice, and that catchy phrase denoting the hour for the rendezvous. goes on to tell Falstaff about Meg, adding that he bewitches all women. Claiming that it's not witchcraft, but his own personal charm, Falstaff asks whether or not the women know about each other. Quickly answers, woman is born cunning, have no fear. La donna nasce scaltra, non temete, as the piccolo fairly giggles in a chromatic cascade of sound at the real meaning of her words. La donna When quickly leaves, Falstaff exults, Alice mia, Alice is mine. A huge peal of laughter erupts in the orchestra, laughter quite different from quickly's. Hers was a giggle, his a guffaw. Then the orchestra provides the sound of swaggering footsteps, as Falstaff says to himself, Va vecchio John, go old John, go, go on your way. Your old flesh still provides some sweetness for you. On the word ancora, still, that mountain of flesh quivers in both the voice and the orchestra. And on the words qualche dolcezza, some sweetness, the music becomes sweet for just a few notes as he anticipates the delights that await him. Again, an example of how totally fluid and text-centered this opera is. We'll resume listening with Falstaff's victorious claim that Alice is his. Alice is his. 
tuttavia questa tua vecchia carne ancora spreme qualche dolcezza when Ford enters the room under the assumed name of Mr. Fontana, he shows Falstaff a bag of gold, and the orchestra giddily describes the glint of the coins. As you'll hear next, the orchestra keeps jangling those coins before Falstaff as he asks why Ford is offering him money. Ford's description of Alice is another of those lyrical gems that permeate the opera. In Windsor there's a woman who's beautiful and very charming, says Ford. C'è a Windsor una dama bella e leggiadra molto. The sensual music becomes more staccato, more pragmatic, as he fills in the details. Her name is Alice. She's the wife of a certain Ford. The role of Ford is sung by Robert Merrill. Non so Per qual mio merito messere Ve lo dirò, c'è a Windsor una dama, bella e leggiadra molto, si chiama Alice, è moglie d'un certo Ford. After Ford expounds on his desire for Alice and her indifference to him, he proposes his plan to Falstaff. The latter finds it unusual, but assures Ford that he will be successful because, conveniently enough, he has an appointment to see Alice that very afternoon, from two until three, dalle due alle tre. Ford can only sputter, dalle due alle tre. Falstaff goes off to, in his words, make himself beautiful. His fatuous exit music is truncated by a single, unexpected pianissimo chord, introducing Ford's soliloquy. We'll resume listening as Falstaff leaves. Then that unexpected chord. In a state of shock, Ford asks himself, a sogno? Is it a dream or reality? Two huge horns are growing from my head, he cries bitterly. Then softly, incredulously, he asks again if this is a dream. The tempo picks up, and the strings express Ford's agitation as he tells himself to wake up to his wife's infidelity. Here now is Falstaff's exit and the opening of Ford's aria. Vai tardi, aspettami qua. Vado a farmi bello. By making Ford a strong presence here, Verdi not only strengthens the entire scene dramatically, but also makes the humor at the end of the scene particularly effective. Both Verdi and Boito understood that humor emerges from the unexpected, 
from the incongruous. Ford's aria and Falstaff's re-entrance music are highly incongruous. We'll resume listening to the aria as Ford says that he's exploding with rage. The vocal line gasps, then rises steadily as he vows vengeance, and the aria reaches its fierce climax on the word jealousia, jealousy. That climax is interrupted by a tripping figure in the orchestra as Falstaff prances in, overdressed in his finery, for his rendezvous with Alice. The incongruity of Falstaff's dandified music, coming right at the end of Ford's blustery, melodramatic aria, results in one of the wittiest moments in the opera. In an Alphonse-Gaston exchange, each of the two men insists that the other precede him out the door. Finally, they exit arm in arm as the orchestra guffaws to the music that described Falstaff's laughter earlier in the scene. He has no idea that when he reaches his destination, the laugh will be on him. scene of Act Two takes place in a room in Ford's house. Quickly reports on her meeting with Falstaff, and the women prepare a huge laundry basket and a screen as part of their plan to humiliate him. Nanetta cries because her father wants her to marry Dr. Caius, but her mother assures her that he will not have his way. Then Falstaff arrives and begins to woo Alice. As planned by the women, quickly interrupts, warning that the jealous Meg is coming. Alice hides Falstaff behind the screen, and Meg comes in, pretending that Ford is arriving in a rage. Moments later, Quickly unexpectedly returns to warn Alice that Ford really is approaching. In comes the jealous husband, along with Caius, Bardolph, Pistol, and Fenton. Ford searches the laundry basket. Finding nothing, he and the other men leave to search the rest of the house. Then the women hide Falstaff in the basket, while Nanetta and Fenton hide behind the screen. Ford returns and discovers the lovers instead of Falstaff. 
When Ford hurries out again to continue hunting down Sir John, Alice tells the servants to empty the contents of the basket out the window into the Thames River below. Then she sends for Ford, who returns just in time for his wife to point out the window at Falstaff, who is dragging himself out of the river below. This scene opens with an effervescent orchestral introduction, similar in mood to the second scene of Act One. Quickly narrates the story of her visit to Falstaff, ending with Dalle due alle tre. Since it's already two o'clock, her narrative prompts a flurry of activity as the women prepare for Sir John. We'll begin listening as Alice tells her servants to bring in the laundry basket. Quickly is eager for the fun to begin, but Alice notices that Nanetta is despondent. In a brief, poignant passage marked espressivo, the oboe and the strings describe the young girl's weeping. When Nanetta explains that her father is forcing her to marry Dr. Caius, the women object, joining in a chorus of no's. In several of his letters, Verdi stated that he regarded Alice as the most important character in the opera after Falstaff. It is Alice, wrote Verdi, who manages the entire intrigue of the comedy. In this scene, just before Falstaff enters, Alice calls the other women to action, announcing that it's the hour in which they'll make laughter explode, using their wit in the service of virtue. She goes on to say, in a famous line from the Shakespeare, that they'll show the men that wives can be merry and yet honest too. The music sparkles with her charm and self-assurance as she sings, Gaie comare di Windsor e l'ora. Merry wives of Windsor, the hour has come. When Falstaff arrives, he woos Alice with flowery words and a melody that sounds a bit overbearing, but is nonetheless beautiful. Playing this game to the hilt, Alice responds with a sensual melody, prompting Falstaff to call her a siren. She claims that Falstaff is a flatterer. He declares his love even more passionately. She interrupts by commenting on the amount of his considerable flesh. On the very next beat, the tempo picks up, and in a passage marked pianissimo and leggerissimo, very soft and very light, Falstaff sings an aria describing how thin he used to be. The aria is as small as he claims his figure was, the melody life and weightless. When I was a page for the Duke of Norfolk, I was thin, 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 he sings. Quando ero paggio del Duca di Norfolk, ero sottile, sottile, sottile. 
By the way, Verdi knew that the accent for Norfolk was on the wrong syllable, but he chose to take poetic license with the word for the sake of the rhythm of the music. About 30 seconds after Falstaff's aria begins, it ends, and on the next beat, Alice asks if he would ever deceive her. The pace and fluidity of the scene and the sheer delight of the Paggio aria are extraordinary. We resume listening to the duet between Falstaff and Alice, a duet that frames that diminutive aria about the formerly diminutive Falstaff. As I mentioned earlier, the sound of the words written by Boito, their sheer musicality, often reflects their meaning. In Falstaff's little aria, for instance, the word sottile sounds slender, and as you heard, it's repeated three times. Falstaff goes on to say, Ero miraggio vago leggero gentile. I was a vision, vague, light, and elegant. And the words reflect that weightlessness. When Quickly enters a little later in the scene to warn Alice and Meg that the furious Ford really is coming, she says, he's yelling, blazing, thundering, he's hitting his head, bursting with threats and screaming. In Italian, the words sound like Ford's actions. Strepita, tuona, fulmina, si dà dei pugni in testa, scoppia minacce ed urla. Boito restructured the scene parallel to this one in Shakespeare's Merry Wives, adding not only the Paggio aria, but the idea of having Nanetta and Fenton behind the screen, the subsequent kiss, and the ensuing chaos. Boito also provided a more natural climax for the scene. In the Shakespeare, Falstaff is thrown into the Thames before the jealous Ford begins to search the house. But in the opera, the laundry basket is emptied into the river at the end of the scene, giving it focus and a more effective climax. When Quickly comes in to announce that Ford is approaching, the music moves with incredible speed, describing the very real panic of the women as they close the screen around Falstaff. The strings continue to scurry as the men enter, looking for Sir John. They search the laundry basket, strewing the dirty linen about, then run off to check the rest of the house. Now it's the women's turn to act. Swiftly, they stuff Falstaff into the basket and cover him with dirty linen. Nanette and Fenton enter, and hide behind the screen. The men return and start to tear the room apart in their effort to find Falstaff. Since they've already searched the basket, that's the one place they don't look. They're shouting to one another, musically of course, as the orchestra continues its mad pace. Then the music seems to evaporate into thin air, reduced to nothing but a few staccato notes, 
followed by the sound of a kiss. Chet, says Ford. He's there. Chet, says Caius. After two measures of silence, the men begin to advance on the screen cautiously. Ford and Caius alternate threats. If I catch you, if I seize you, if I grab you by the hair, I'll tear you to pieces. Even the orchestra seems to be sneaking up on the culprits behind the screen, as it plays two furtive notes after each threat. These threats are the beginning of an extraordinary ensemble involving nine characters and a chorus of neighbors who come to see what's going on. By the way, Alice isn't on stage at this point because she has gone to alert the servants that their help will be needed with a laundry basket. The ensemble builds naturally. It begins with Ford and Caius muttering threats as they advance on the screen. Next, Bardolph and Pistol echo those threats. Then Quickly and Meg comment on the situation in buoyant triplets. Both women are obviously relishing the proceedings. We'll resume listening just before the ensemble begins. You'll hear the rush of activity in the orchestra as the men shout to one another, scurrying about in search of Falstaff. Then the staccato notes, the kiss, Ford's che, echoed by Caius, arrest, and the ensemble begins. Even here, Verdi provides an expansive melody as the lovers, unaware of what's going on around the screen that enfolds them, sing of their love for one another. Their ecstatic voices float above those of the other characters. Occasionally, Falstaff can be heard gasping for air, muttering that he's suffocating in the basket. Suddenly, there's a loud downward swoop in the orchestra as Ford overturns the screen and finds, instead of Falstaff, his daughter and Fenton. As you listen, notice that despite the complexity of this ensemble, the layers of sound remain crystal clear. Ford expresses his disapproval of Fenton, the men again run off to search the house. Alice calls on her servants to lift the basket and empty it through the window. She warns them that the contents include something large. 
Here at the end of the act, you'll hear the orchestra describe the servants' efforts to lift that heavy basket. They finally succeed in dumping the contents, complete with Falstaff, into the river below. The trumpets resound triumphantly, bringing this act to a close as Alice shows Ford the fate of her immense suitor. Despite the fact that Falstaff deserves to be punished for his deceit, arrogance, and lust, and despite the fact that his being dumped unceremoniously into the Thames is funny, there's a certain pathos about him at this point. His faults are legion, and yet he's compelling rather than unsavory. Who is Sir John Falstaff? And what makes him so appealing that, for Verdi, he took on a life of his own? In Shakespeare's historical plays, he's an old soldier who has always lived on the fringes of the court of England. A soldier who waits until the last possible moment to go into battle, and then makes sure he doesn't fight. He represents the low life, as opposed to the noble world for which Prince Hal is destined. In Henry IV, Part I, Falstaff describes himself to Prince Hal as a goodly, portly man, and a corpulent, of a cheerful look, a pleasing eye, and a most noble carriage, and as I think his age some fifty or inclining to threescore. The historical plays contain numerous references to Falstaff's corpulence. For instance, Prince Hal says, Falstaff sweats to death and lards the lean earth as he walks along. Were it not for laughing, I should pity him. Falstaff's immensity occupies center stage and makes him a magnifying glass for all other human beings. His size also accounts for his vulnerability. He himself says in the Shakespeare, I have more flesh than another man, and therefore more frailty. Falstaff is an oversized monument to excess, to moral ambiguity, to human imperfection. He's a glutton, a coward, a teller of monumental lies, yet an exhilarating source of adventure and humor. He regards himself as free from everything that binds other human beings, whether it be ideals or laws or honor. He takes pleasure in the life of the senses, no matter what the price. He often refers to his manhood, yet he's incapable of love for anyone but himself. Above all, he's vain. He's potentially dangerous because he entangles the lives of others in his attempts to satisfy his vanity. In Henry IV, Part II, Falstaff is cruelly rejected by Prince Hal immediately after the latter is crowned King Henry V. In Merry Wives, Falstaff is punished for his vanity and self-indulgence. But, as always, he manages to pick up the pieces. His ability to take life in stride, combined with his ability to laugh at himself, is the secret of his charm. According to John Bailey, author of Book of Homage to Shakespeare, Falstaff is triumphant at his own expense. If he did not know that he was a gross ton of flesh, a drunkard, a coward, and a liar, we should know it more and love him less. 
As Act Three opens, Falstaff is at his most vulnerable and pathetic. He's seated outside the Garter Inn, soaking wet, gloomy, humiliated. But a little mulled wine helps to restore his self-esteem. Quickly appears and gradually convinces Falstaff that Alice wants to arrange another rendezvous with him. As Quickly and Falstaff walk into the inn, Ford, Alice, Meg, Nanetta, Caius, and Fenton emerge from hiding. They plot to torment Falstaff again. Nanetta will be disguised as the Queen of the Fairies, Quickly as a witch, Meg as a nymph, and Alice will bring some children dressed as sprites and fairies. They will all scare Falstaff and force him to confess his wickedness. As the women leave, Quickly overhears Ford promising Caius Nanetta's hand in marriage. After a brief orchestral prelude, a harsh chord and a downward rush of the strings introduce Falstaff's monologue. The lines of this bitter soliloquy are taken from both Henry IV plays. Falstaff calls for the innkeeper, then denounces the wickedness of the world. Mondo ladro, mondo rubaldo, reo mondo. Wicked world, villainous world, vile world. His words are all sung on one low note, as though Falstaff were muttering to himself. The low, dark sounds of the clarinets, bassoons, horns, and trombones express his depression. He feels glum, dejected, defeated. Falstaff orders mulled wine, then broods over the indignity of being tossed into the river. He, a knight, with all that dirty laundry. Va, vecchio John, he says. Go, old John, as the orchestra plods along. Walk on until you die. True manhood disappears with you. He sinks further into depression, noting in a hushed voice that his hair is turning gray. He begins to drink the wine. As we resume listening, you'll literally hear the wine take effect. Falstaff says that it clears the mind, lights the eyes, and trills through the heart, trilling until that trill covers the world. And as he sings, his voice rises higher and higher, and the orchestra trills, first a solo flute, then the strings, until finally the entire orchestra trills noisily. His soliloquy reaches a mighty climax, only to be deflated by a single word, reverenza quickly has arrived. Thank you. 
quickly gradually convinces Falstaff to meet Alice at Hearn's Oak in Windsor Park at midnight. He is to disguise himself as Hearn the Hunter, an ancient legendary figure said to haunt one of the great oaks in Windsor Park, and to appear at midnight rattling a chain. As quickly leads Falstaff into the tavern, elaborating on the legend, the others enter the scene. Alice mimics Quickly's eerie narrative. Then, gently, she chides her husband Ford for his suspicions. Alice assigns everyone to his or her various roles that evening, and the women go off to prepare for the woodland encounter, after which Ford tells Caius that Nanetta will be his. Just remember what she's wearing, says Ford. Her face will be hidden by a veil, yours by a monk's hood. Quickly returns from the tavern, just in time to overhear their conversation. When Verdi first read Boito's outline for the Falstaff libretto, he was concerned about maintaining the momentum of the comedy to the very end, worrying that the last act might be trivial. In a long letter dated July 7, 1889, Boito told Verdi that the last act is always a problem in comedy, whereas in tragedy, in Boito's words, the approach of the catastrophe increases the excitement because the end is terrible. Therefore, the last acts of a tragedy are the best. In a comedy, as soon as the knot is about to be untied, the interest subsides because the ending is happy. Boito went on to tell Verdi that the last scene in Falstaff offered certain advantages, the fresh, new ambiance of fantasy and three strong comedic moments, Falstaff's monologue when he enters wearing antlers, the inquisition of Falstaff, and the double wedding of the disguised couples. In Merry Wives, Shakespeare lifted the last scene of his prosaic comedy to another plane through the use of poetry. In Falstaff, Verdi lifts the opera to another plane in the last scene with music that's poetic. Sublime, really. The transition to that poetic plane begins even before the last scene. At the end of scene one, after Quickly overhears Ford's conversation with Caius, the two men exit and Quickly goes off to join the other women, leaving the stage deserted. There remains only the sound of the women's voices off stage, calling to one another about the lanterns, the masks, the songs they'll need that evening. Verdi's highly effective use of off-stage voices serves to expand the action to another place, one more vast and mysterious. In effect, by the end of scene one, the transition from the everyday world to the enchantment of Windsor Park has already begun. It's nighttime in Windsor Park. As the final scene of the opera opens, Fenton is there alone, singing a love song. Nanetta enters, followed by Alice and Quickly, who bring Fenton a monk's robe to wear as his disguise, and then urge everyone to hide. Falstaff, disguised as Hearn the Hunter, complete with antlers, arrives and woos Alice. 
but they're interrupted by Meg, who cries out that there are witches about. Alice runs off, and Falstaff falls to the ground, because he knows that whoever gazes on the spirits will die. All the others come on the scene and torment Falstaff until he repents. Ford betroths his daughter, he thinks, to Caius. At Alice's request, he blesses another couple in marriage. But Bardolph, who dislikes Caius, has put on Annette's costume, and Ford unwittingly weds Caius to Bardolph and his daughter to Fenton. The opera ends happily with a fugue launched by Falstaff, in which he proclaims that all the world is a jest. The pace of the opera becomes more leisurely in this final scene. The lyrical passages are more extended, immersing us in a world of fantasy. The scene opens with off-stage horn calls interspersed with the love music in the strings and woodwinds, creating a pastoral atmosphere. Fenton's love song is a sonnet set to a beguiling melody, and the orchestral accompaniment, dominated by the English horn, is gentle and tender. This enchanting love song combines the pastoral mood of the scene with the ardor of young love. Fenton's sonnet ends with the words of the lover's refrain, and Nanetta answers as she enters the scene. Their refrain is more rhapsodic than ever before, but, as usual, the lovers are interrupted, this time by Alice, who says that Fenton must disguise himself by wearing a monk's robe and hood. There's a flurry of activity as all the participants in this elaborate plot take their places. Poetry gives way to comedy as Falstaff arrives wearing antlers. Alice enters, saying little other than Sir John as he woos her. Meg interrupts, screaming from off stage that the witches are coming, and the terrified Falstaff throws himself on the ground, face down. Another moment of enchantment follows as Nanetta, dressed as the Queen of the Fairies, calls to her subjects to sing and dance in the moonlight. Her luminous song parallels Fenton's sonnet in its poetic beauty. We'll hear the second verse in which Nanetta sings of gathering the enchanted flowers.
Verdi wanted to be sure that Falstaff was, in the composer's words, soundly threshed, and he certainly is in this scene. The tempo speeds up as the various characters emerge from hiding and deliberately stumble over Falstaff's body. They tease him and pinch him relentlessly. The scene becomes a kind of witch's Sabbath, a primitive ritual in which Falstaff is tortured. The music laughs, but the words are cruel. Boita was fascinated by the problem of duality in life, by the coexistence of good and evil, and he seems to take the punishment of that evil seriously. As the women pinch Falstaff, the sheer sound of Boito's words imparts their meaning. Pizzica, 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 stuzzica, spizzica, spizzica, pungi. Pinch, 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 provoke, nibble, nibble, sting. Falstaff cries out in pain, but the torture continues. <laughs> Bardolph gets carried away, and his disguise slips off. Recognizing Bardolph, Falstaff insults him with a series of scathing names to which everyone responds, Bravo! Alice reveals that the so-called Mr. Fontana is none other than Ford, and Mistress quickly unmasks. Falstaff admits he has made a fool of himself, but he adds that he has brought humor into their lives. The atmosphere becomes poetic again as Ford announces the entrance of the couples to be married. As you'll hear, the exquisite minuet that accompanies his words, played by three flutes and the strings, bathes the scene in magic. The mood changes instantly as the couples unmask. Caius discovers that his bride is Bardolph, and Ford realizes that he has married his daughter to Fenton. Alice, who has succeeded both in having vengeance on Falstaff and in protecting her daughter from an unhappy marriage, sums up the course of events, saying that men often fall into the very traps that they themselves have set. Shakespeare's Merry Wives ends with a line by Ford which refers to the original agreement he made with Falstaff. Ford says, Sir John, to Master Brooke you yet shall hold your word, for he tonight shall lie with Mistress Ford. It's mildly amusing, certainly not profoundly human. For the conclusion of Falstaff, Boito adapted a speech from the Bard's brilliant comedy, As You Like It. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. Boito turned that concept into these words, All the world's a jest and man is born a jester. Tutto nel mondo è burla, l'uomo è nato burlone. The music for this finale is the first Verdi wrote for the opera. Usually Verdi developed his musical ideas in order, but he composed this while awaiting the libretto from Boito. In a letter to Boito, Verdi wrote, You are working, I hope. 
The strangest thing of all is that I'm working too. I'm amusing myself by writing fugues, a comic fugue that would be appropriate for Falstaff. Why comic? I don't know how or why, but it's a comic fugue. The fugue is a highly structured musical form in which a melody is introduced by a voice or instrument, then repeated by another one, then by yet a third one, all of them intertwined. Verdi detested the restrictions imposed by forms, yet he chose to write a fugue for the ending of Falstaff, a comic fugue to end this opera with a great burst of laughter. In his wisdom, Verdi wanted the audience to rejoice together in a spirit of tolerance and understanding, without bitterness, to laugh at humanity itself, the humanity we share with all its imperfections, imperfections magnified in the person of his portly knight. Falstaff introduces the melody of the fugue, followed by Fenton, Quickly, and Alice, then the six remaining soloists, and eventually the chorus. The fugue is joyous and young, and despite its musical complexity, crystal clear. On the last page of the original manuscript of Falstaff are a few words written by the composer before he sent the score off to his publisher's archives. Verdi knew that this would be his last opera, and he addressed his words to none other than Falstaff. Tutto è finito, wrote Verdi. It's all over. Go, go, old John. Walk along your way as long as you can. An entertaining kind of rogue eternally true under your various guises, in every time, in every place. Go, go, walk along, walk along. Farewell. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to part two of episode 41 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Be sure to tune in next week as we get the inside scoop on this summer's HD festival going on here at Lincoln Center, as well as a preview of what's to come in the 2016-2017 lecture offerings and community programs going on here at the Metropolitan Opera Guild. That wraps things up for today, so I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.